News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, let's talk about what is in the news. And of course, in the last 24 hours, it's been all about Prime Minister Trudeau and his testimony at the House of Commons Finance Committee yesterday. Let's find out how that went. Joining us now is Abigail Beeman, our Global National Ottawa correspondent. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. Okay, so that was a big day yesterday. What did we learn? We learned a couple of things from the Prime Minister's testimony, most notably a new timeline that we hadn't heard previously. The Prime Minister says that he first heard that we was being recommended by the Civil Service to lead this program on May 8th. Now, by that point, we was already working on getting this program off the ground, but the Prime Minister says he and his Chief of Staff were briefed about it just a few hours before a Cabinet meeting where it was supposed to be discussed on May 8th. Uh, And they felt, he and his Chief of Staff, that this was moving too quickly, even in the rapid COVID era of rolling out programs. Uh, so he says that he put the brakes on it at that point, and that's significant uh, in that he said that he knew there were going to be questions about his family ties uh, to the WE organization, and therefore he wanted more dil- due diligence done by the civil service. Fast forward a couple of weeks to May 21st, uh, the Prime Minister receives another briefing from the civil service. He receives enough information that makes him confident to then sit at the cabinet table bring this deal forward and we know it was approved uh from there right there was there i should also add that there was one other piece of news that came out of um the testimony which was uh, that for weeks the government has been saying we're going to figure out a way to do this student summer grant program we're going to figure out a way to, to let it move forward yesterday the prime minister said it was quote unlikely that that would happen so it now seems that it is indeed dead in the water you know it is the end of july as to mm-hmm. what was supposed to be a summer program so some confirmation there okay so now we know the prime minister did not agree to the three hours of testimony that the committee had wanted, but his chief of staff did agree to the extension for two hours. And that's the thing, we don't often get to hear anything from the Prime Minister's chief of staff, Katie Telford. So did we learn anything else from her? That, that's true. We don't uh, see her too often uh, out in front. And uh, Katie Telford said that she uh, also has regrets that the Prime Minister did not recuse himself. She also said that uh, there could have been another layer of oversight, that in hindsight, they should have done more uh, on this program. They could have, you know, had that extra layer. Something that the opposition was really, specifically the Conservatives were really uh, hammering her on uh, was another point of, of dates on this time. So I mentioned May 8th. Um, Katie Telford said that she looked into it and that there were, quote, a handful, as she put it, of conversations between we and members of the prime minister's office over this, you know, whole period. But she said one of them was before the official program launch. And that came out in further questioning to be May 5th. Now, May 5th is also the date that the uh, Kielbergers have as the start date for their for their program when they could start incurring expenses for it. So the opposition was very seized that there was a conversation between the Prime Minister's office and uh, the and and we on May 5th. Uh, according to Katie Telford, this was a, a general conversation, a, a regular conversation as people policy uh, staffers have with stakeholders and that we, the policy staffer, directed we to the right department, which is ESDC, right. uh, to, a- to answer more specific questions. Okay, well, we do know the Prime Minister. We're going to be hearing from him again today, but not kind of 
in that format. He would really like to focus on something else, wouldn't he? Yes. Uh, So today we are expecting the Prime Minister to announce the national COVID-19 app. They're avoiding calling it a contact tracing app. They call it an exposure notification app. So it will let you know uh, if you've potentially come into contact uh, with the virus. Uh, Not calling it a uh, contact tracing app is, is about privacy concerns, so this app doesn't track you, according to the government. We're expecting a lot more details uh, on that today. Uh, we're also expecting the Prime Minister to provide some updates on a number of other supports related to COVID, but he is taking questions from the media, uh, and and you can bet that there will be uh, some on the WE Affair, too. <laughs> that feels like the understatement of the day. Yes, there will be yeah. some. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. That's Abigail Beeman, our Global National Ottawa correspondent. Yeah, there will be more than a few questions to the Prime Minister today, uh, sure, on the contact tracing app or contact tracing that they're talking about, but also definitely on his testimony. People uh, will be seeking some clarification on some of the things he said, so we will have those updates for you. All right, let's talk about this weekend because we expect with the long weekend, with the good weather, that there might be some crowds around in some places. And I know that health officials, Dr. Henry, Adrian Dix and more are saying, please, please be careful out there. Make sure you continue to distance. And they might want to consider downloading the COVID alert app that has been developed by the government of Canada. We're going to be hearing more about that from Prime Minister Trudeau today as they make the official kind of announcement. We wanted to get some details on it. Uh, Denis Gagnon, who's the president of BCSI Investigations, we've had him on before, and he has been tracking the development of the app for months now, and he joins us now to talk about it. Thanks so much for being here. Morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. Well, tell me about this then. What have you learned about this app? How does it work? Well, this app is going to be, they've, they've now put it on a name called Exposure Notification App. So what, what's going to happen is when you become a proximity to someone, well, the first thing is that they're going to have to be tested and proving to be positive. And then the phone through the Bluetooth um, connection will be able to advise you that, in fact, you have you are at proximity of someone who has tested positive. But meanwhile, you must have the app downloaded to your phone. So that's going to be the first thing is that how many people will have this app downloaded. For example, Iceland um, only had 38% of people. They're the most in the world. Singapore, Australia, 25% of people have the app downloaded. So that's going to be the first thing will be to download the app, and that's going to be the key. Is that going to be done? Not sure yet if people will, will, will get to, to download that app. Uh, the other key from what it sounds like, the way you described there, is that you're assuming then that somebody has tested for COVID-19, tested positive, and is still going out. As opposed to not knowing and being in the crowd. And that's the other issue, Simi, is that a lot of people are asymptomatic, so they haven't been tested. They don't know they've got it. So they would not download the app because they haven't tested positive. So that's that other uh, criteria. So now the whole issue in the world is that they've, they've determined that is the app really, really effective in comparison to people being socially responsible? And there is this, this whole uh, change in, in behavior and thinking that is it is the app going to solve it or yeah. people behavior going to solve it or a hybrid of the two right yeah so this is where we're at this this means that people have to know and i think the problem that we have had is that people don't know they have it when they're out and about yeah, and also the people are still concerned about privacy issue. We're going to be dealing with the you know a government agency. There's a hybrid of private company, um, you know, that have developed the app, Apple, Google, 
BlackBerry, Shopify are involved. So the data is always a concern to individual. Are you going to start getting advertisement on your phone saying, buy PPE, buy mask? Um, I, I'm not saying this is what's going to happen, but the control of the data is going to be absolutely crucial because we're dealing with people's health records. So that's also you know a concern. Right. And also some people don't even have a smartphone. Some seniors are not savvy with downloading apps. I mean, this is not like... Um, you know, like into young people that deal with TikToks or whatever and apps every day, a lot of people are not used on downloading those apps. So there's a lot, a lot of logistic issue that's going to have to take place. And I know it sounds exciting and so on. And I'm, I'm totally on board to download the app and have it, you know, um, I, I, when I was in Alberta, mm-hmm. I downloaded the Alberta app and, I, you know, I've, I've never been notified that I've been at proximity to anyone. But, um, you know, it comes down to being a responsible citizen. And, you know, there's, a, the, the, you know, the, the, the two meter, the mask, this whole approach has to be a hybrid. I think we're doing good in comparison to the, you know, our, the people south of us. But meanwhile, it comes down to your own responsibility. Mm-hmm. Is the app going to solve everything? No. But is it a strong, could it be a strong component? Yes. That's the way I see it at this point. Right. Yeah. It is very popular in other countries, though, isn't it? Well, you know, like I said, the, the one that has the most used was Iceland. And uh, Singapore, Australia, which are really, you know, big on technology, they only had a 25% acceptance. So that's that's the bit of a concern is that only 25% of the people accepted the apps. And, for example, in Asia, they have 80 apps available. And only one-fifth of them are uh, uh, one-fifth of them have no privacy at all. So we're a little bit lucky that way because I think the government is going to run pretty tight on privacy. I mean, we're big on privacy in Canada. But again, some people will feel that giving some private information, even if the phone doesn't track your personal data, will be of a concern to individuals. So that may slow down the downloading of the app, and it's going to be a process, and now we're going to get into a long weekend. The app is going to be ready today. A lot of people won't be ready for this weekend. So it comes down, like I said, Simi, to what you've been promoting. A lot of new media has been promoting is basically be a responsible citizen. Wear a mask. You're two meter, you know, in regards to staying away from people, your social distancing. And then if this is on top of it and we keep adding on to get to the bottom of this, of solving this issue with this, this, um, this uh, virus, then I think all those together may make us make some step, but it's just one component uh, of of this whole thing. Well, we know that contact tracing has worked well here in BC for sure. I just wonder, have we waited too long to get people invested in an app? I think it's taken a long time. For example, if you look at, you know, for example, the Blueberry Farm in the Fraser Valley, it's easy when people work at one location. You've got all the data on each individual. You can say, well, John has the virus, so we can contact all the other workers. But let's, for example, look at a grocery store, right? So when you're going to the grocery store, you don't know who's in there. I mean, they don't collect all the people's identity. So if somebody is positive... And you, you know, so how are they going to contact the individual? They don't have the data from all the people coming right. through the cash register. So this is where we run into issues. Restaurants have been good because they can have access to your credit card and so on, and they may ask you your information when you come in. So, but it's when you're in the public location, walking on the seawall, you don't have that information to be able to connect. So the app then can become very effective. So are you going to be downloading this app and using it? I am. I'm going to test it over the next couple of weeks. I mean, I'm going to download it. I'm going to test it. I'm going to run it, and I'll see what, uh, how it works. Well, I guess we'll be talking to you again. Denis, thank you so much for your time. 
You're very welcome. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. That's Denny Gagnon, who's the president of BCSI Investigations. He's been tracking the development of this app that is being rolled out by the government of Canada today, explaining to us how it works there. Uh, you know, there's a lot of components, as he pointed out, that go into helping us to keep the, the virus at bay. And this app is another one of them. More details on it coming up a little bit later when the prime minister makes the announcement. Time for us a little chat with uh, Nikki Reitmeyer this morning. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. I'm trying to stay focused on what we're going to chat on, but really all I could think about right now is that we just found out this morning that the producer of our show has never watched a single episode of Seinfeld. And all I could think about now is putting together an essential list of episodes that he really should watch. It's shocking, isn't it? You think you know a person. You'd have to actively avoid Seinfeld in order to have not seen a single episode. It's always on TV. I know. So my mind is kind of blown by that. So I'm going to try to leave that alone for a while because we've already been giving him a hard enough time about this. Uh, But I also love the topic that we're discussing today because this has been an active type of discussion at my house. Oh, man, especially over the past, I don't know, a week or so. We had kind of crummy weather to start with this summer, didn't we? It was sort of rainy. It wasn't too warm. There's a couple nice days, but nothing that really dictated you having to leave your windows open, uh, at least for a full week or so at a time like we've had with this heat wave now. Everybody has their windows wide open. I should say everybody who doesn't have air conditioning has their windows wide open as you're trying to get some air into the home that you live. And as a result, you're hearing your neighbors a whole lot more than before. (laughs) I'm definitely experiencing this. Are you experiencing this as well? You hear everything. Yes. Uh, My neighbor, I I live on a great street and absolutely amazing neighbors and I just love them to pieces. But unfortunately, the sound carries in unique ways. Now, I'll tell a story about the people who, they don't live there anymore, but they used to live behind us uh, across the alley from us. And this particular person, this lady used to like to sit on her deck And she used to like to talk on the phone a lot. And last summer when we had like quite a heat, there was a couple of really warm days that we had there. She would lie out on her deck and she would talk loudly on her phone about her, oh, geez, how do I put this? Um, Oh, no. Extracurricular activities. Oh. And the sound would carry directly into my neighbor's kitchen. So that just the way the sound was, it would go directly into my neighbor's kitchen. And my neighbor was like mortified being like, I don't want to hear about this woman's sex life, right? Which is what she was hearing while she was sitting, like while she was washing the dishes at her sink. So she had to actually, this this is how awkward and embarrassing this got, Nikki, because it got to be quite bad, right? So she had to go, my neighbor did, and knock on this person's door and say to her, listen, I'm really sorry to have to do this, and I'm. it's awkward as all get out, but could you maybe lower your voice when you're talking on the phone outside? Because I can hear all of your discussions. Some things I oh. don't want to hear. And so it was just mortifying all around when you're, oh, living, like, no. when you're that close. Yeah. Do you know what the reaction was from, from the woman? She no longer talked outside on the deck. She well, no problem solved, right? Yes, I know. <laughs> but in this hot weather, you do get a lot of that. I mean, there's another neighbor that's got a child in the backyard that's a little, likes to, likes to scream every time it gets excited. You got to live with that at this point. Yeah, we have kids like that too in our neighborhood. They they live up the block and, and they're lovely generally. But oh, I think it was even last night. I'm trying to think now because everything's blurring together into just one big hot heat wave <laughs> and one big hot day. The kids were outside and it was late. It was maybe 10 o'clock and I could hear them, you know, when they, they scream. They're scream playing. They're screaming. And I was going, 
don't make me come down there. It's late <laughs> at night. <laughs> I'm not going to be in a good mood if I have to say something. Uh, oh, I have funny. Uh, lovely, generally lovely neighbors in, in my direct building in particular. I, I really like my neighbors. Um, and throughout the neighborhood, you know, there's some really lovely people that uh, I get to know as well, particularly when you're walking the dogs. But I have this, I, I don't even know where the guy is because there's a lot of trees in my neighborhood and there's a lot of apartment buildings. And he's in one of the apartments, but it's sort of sheltered by a tree. So I don't, really know what building he's in and I don't really know what he looks like but on a hot Saturday he'll bring his guitar out onto his patio oh, no. and put on a concert for the neighborhood the problem is he sounds like this so this I'm is, sorry he, he's putting on a neighborhood concert of Nirvana <laughs> so yes he does so this, this that you're hearing now is a band called Puddle of Mud, uh, a very bad cover that they've been sort of made fun of uh, since I think they put it out in April. Uh, so he nothing sounds soothing. like that, though. Nothing soothing. He's not coming out there and like, you know, giving people something inspiring and soothing and nice to listen to. Oh, no, we, we're talking Nirvana. We're talking all the, you know, any rock band that he can think of. And then he'll take, say, a pop song or, you know, a song that's a softer <laughs> song. I don't know, the Titanic theme song or something. Uh, you know, a nice soothing song. And he'll turn it into a rock song. <laughs> no. And it's the same thing. Just and, the, and what you just heard there, you know, just <laughs> like, like a moose is dying on my neighbor's patio oh, no. whilst playing the guitar. But is he's what trying like. to do something nice for the neighborhood. That's that's the thing. Oh, and he thinks he sounds terrific. And he'll go on for hours, serenade. He brings out the harmonica at some points to to back up what he's doing. I don't know, maybe he has a friend there. I don't know. Someone's playing the harmonica along with him. It is, it's really something else. I like I don't get me wrong, I love the sounds of a neighborhood. You know, we have a lot of kids in our neighborhood and I love hearing the sounds of them play outside. I just love it. They, they run around, they play tag. You can always hear them in the evenings. I think it's great. It's just every once in a while you're like, whoa, that's close. That's a little too much information. I don't think I need to know that. Yeah. You're going, can the weather cool down a little bit if nothing else? So I can just close my windows and get a little bit of peace and quiet. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure other uh, people have stories too. I just got an email from Peter, actually. Peter, you're just rubbing it in now. He says, we don't hear our neighbors at all. We have central air conditioning. It's really nice Peter, and cool. That's mean. <laughs> he says, stay, stay safe, calm. Be calm and stay cool. Oh, well, Cheers, we, I'm having a cold shower before I go to bed. That's how I'm staying cool, Peter. We don't have air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? That's, I had a cold shower last night. Just, even if you just get your feet in the shower, oh, it kind of feels to. nice to cool down a bit. But yeah, I would love to hear if anyone has any good stories of, you know, annoying, encounters with their annoying neighbors. and funny things that your neighbors have been Yes, that would be great. If you've got any stories like that about your neighbors, do tell us a little close encounter maybe with your neighbors. I mean, great people. I live on a great street with amazing people, but sometimes it does feel like with the windows all open that we're kind of all living in each other's yard at this point. So yesterday, Prime Minister Trudeau was testifying in front of the House of Commons Finance Committee. And if people were expecting the same kind of fireworks and drama that we got from Finance Minister Bill Morneau's testimony, well, they might have been a bit disappointed. But we did want to kind of break it down and get more of an analysis of what happened. So joining us now is Zane Velji, former liberal strategist and co-host of the podcast, The Strategist, uh, joins us to talk more about it. Zane, thanks for being here. 
Hey, good morning, Timmy. So what did you think about this testament? Did it change anybody's mind about how they're feeling about this whole we scandal? Probably not. You know, when we look at political scandals or political sagas, they do one of two things. They either reinforce a narrative or they present new information to solidify a narrative. And I feel like with Justin Trudeau, uh, the narrative has already been baked in, which is, you know, an ethics scandal, of course. You know, something related to entitlement or coziness to a charity, of course. So I think for, for the majority of Canadians, and I say the majority of Canadians who are actually tuning in, you know, we sit here in the dog days of summer where most people, the vast majority, are not tuning into this stuff. For, but for those that are, I think they're going to be more disappointed in Trudeau rather than outright shocked and rather than, uh, you know, and, and I think they'll have a translation to perhaps where they're going to park or place their vote. So I don't think this changes anyone's mind. But, you know, the, the testimony yesterday does present some new information that perhaps gives this story a little bit more legs uh, than I presume the Trudeau government wanted. OK, like what? Well, for me, the first and, and frankly, primary thing was the information that Trudeau yanked the agreement for we from that May cabinet meeting uh, and then replaced it uh, for the subsequent cabinet meeting, but did nothing himself to recuse himself, call the ethics commissioner, yeah. have his staff hunt down what exactly happened. Does that change the narrative of the story? Not so much, but does it change the fact that there's now another dimension to this story to keep prodding on? to keep looking into, of course. And if you're the conservatives or the opposition parties, uh, while it may not have been the smoking gun that you probably desired in the 90-minute testimony, it is now more fodder uh, to try to extend the news cycle on this thing. And, and I'm really surprised why the Trudeau government didn't release this as one unitary package of information that they took their licks on consistently rather than uh, this new information being presented as a drip campaign and here we go again, another piece of information to extend the news cycle uh, and, and give the conservatives and the NDP uh, more fodder. Well, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I've never uh, seen any political party or political leader like Justin Trudeau who does more damage to himself, you know, scores on his own goal more than anybody else. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when, when we count the number of, of ethics issues on the official basis, when it counts the black face, brown face, uh, there's there's those, you know, compounded together should have taken down any traditional politician. At the same time, you know, he has some upside, you know, and, and that upside is, is what I mentioned earlier. The timing. We're in the middle of summer. Uh, the conservatives haven't solidified their leadership race and they're yeah. quite torn as to which direction they're going. And with the NDP not really creeping in and making the gains you'd expect them to, uh, you know, the Trudeau coalition can find itself again post-summer. They just need to get beyond themselves and stop shooting themselves in the foot. All right, then. So very quickly, do you think of the of the two testimonies then, do you think Morneau's was definitely more damaging? I agree. I think what Morneau's did is it added an entirely new uh, stream to the, uh, to, the, to the scandal, which meant that initially the story was, did the public service actually recommend this program to the government? And yesterday we found out the answer to that was yes. Yesterday, we also found out that the people who are watching don't really care because that was the question of three weeks ago. Now the question is of conflict of interest. Now it's the question of dimensionality on entitlement. And the Trudeau uh, thing really was, was fine in answering the initial question, but it did nothing to help the scandal that Bill Morneau, unfortunately, uh, kind of added his own dimension to for the Liberals. All right, Zane, thank you very much for your time. 
Cheers. Have a good morning. You too. That's Zane Velji, a partner and VP of strategy at uh, Northwest Strategies. There he's also co-host of the podcast, The Strategist, talking about the testimony yesterday. Uh, also interesting yesterday was the testimony from the Chief of Staff, Katie Telford. Uh, lots of coverage to come. Prime Minister having a press conference this morning to introduce a contact tracing app. Have a feeling this is also going to be a very hot topic. More to come here on Mornings with Simi. All right, so much to talk about when it comes to the city of Vancouver. We know the park board is waiting for the provincial government to help them sign off on the drinking in parks initiative. But the city of Vancouver is actually moving ahead with allowing people to drink in some designated public spaces. So we're going to talk more about that now. Joining us is Vancouver City Councilor Pete Fry. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. Now, that was a big sigh to start out with, right? Was it a sigh? <laughs> that oh, was a no. deep I'm- sigh. Oh, no, I'm in a good mood, but I have to walk up my house and deal with the uh, the chaos in my neighborhood as a result of the encampment here in Strathcona, but that's oh, another story. That is another story, but I will get to asking you about that for sure. But let's start with the drinking public plazas. There were four plazas that were chosen. Why those four? Uh, so the four were, were really, I think, one of the things to recognize is that we really didn't have a lot of time to put this together. Uh, the motion was first introduced two months ago and got rejected and then brought back. So we were a little behind on the timeline. Uh, had we deployed this in, in May, we would have been able to see a more robust approach throughout the city. Uh, as it happens, though, we really focused on areas where we could do this fairly easily and had um, partnerships in place with some of the, the local BIAs. Okay. So, for instance, the downtown Vancouver BIA uh, and the Robson Street BIA and the Canby uh, Street BIAs have really been very uh, interested in this project and really expressed some support from the get-go. So that allowed our staff to sort of work with them. So is this available right away to people? Uh, it'll be uh, the second week of August. Right. Do you think that gets through to people, though, Councillor Fry? Because I feel like they see the headlines and they think they can do it now. Um, you know, it's going to part of part of the, the motion and the direction on this is going to come with an appropriate amount of signage and uh, really uh, through the Liquor Control Act, the the the, the piece that will to do this uh, really mandates that we have to have clear boundaries, clear hours of operation, uh, and it, it's not just a free for all. So I think that people will understand when it is implemented, uh, and I think to a certain extent, a lot of people won't pay attention to this in the in the sense that a lot of people are out having drinks on beaches and parks anyway. Yeah, that's what I was wondering too. Like, is there any kind of enforcement plan to make sure people understand that, yes, we're allowing you to do this, but there are still some rules? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's, that is the case right now. As we learned from the, the VPD when we first introduced this motion back in May, uh, that uh, they... they tend to turn a blind eye to folks who may be having a, a drink watching the sunset on the beach kind of kind of thing but that's a that's a discretionary policy as opposed to an actual procedural policy so okay and i wonder too when it comes to the drinking in beaches and plazas there's so many questions about this there's been a story in the news in the last couple of hours about this potential party big one down on third beach people putting up posters for that now is that something that the city of vancouver would ever get involved in in trying to shut that down you know, that is ultimately um, the role of the Provincial Health Authority. So we don't, I mean, and of course, Third Beach would be park board jurisdictionally, but but actually the ability to shut that down would have to come from a Provincial Health Order kind of perspective. 
Um, now that said, I think uh, a, a, a gathering of the size you're talking about, if it's planned, uh, would probably be something that we would proactively deal with. And I couldn't say for sure what that approach would look like, but I would imagine the VPD would be obliged to attend and ensure that that did not take place. Has there been a lot of pressure, do you think, on the city for more enforcement? And people have become very concerned the last couple of weeks, right, about gatherings that aren't the right size or people just behaving the way they're not supposed to. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's a concern that we, we share, and, and, and it's a challenge, uh, which is why we're trying to provide these sort of legal options and, and opportunities for folks to physically connect while socially distancing. And, you know, I will add that, that these proposed uh, plazas will have appropriate signage reminding folks about this kind of thing. But we recognize that folks do want to get together, that it is summertime, that people have been very diligent about, uh, you know, supporting the sort of pandemic directions from the provincial health office and and maintaining, for the most part, you know, maintaining their physical distancing and not having big parties and gatherings. So we're we're trying to strike that balance. Uh, And of course, there are a few bad operators and that includes some some businesses that haven't been sort of following the health order. That includes folks who are organizing parties or drum circles or what have you. Um, so we, but we have to manage this in a in a balanced approach, recognizing that that folks are humans and they're frustrated and yeah. uh, they're going to do what they're going to do, and it's impossible for us to enforce every sort of non-compliant action out there. But uh, through education, we can try and mitigate a little bit of that. So for public plazas to start with, is there a mechanism where this will be revisited? Is there a possibility of more of them being added? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the original intent of the motion was to address this from a real equity perspective, and that included sort of equity for distribution throughout the city uh, in neighborhoods throughout the city, recognizing that folks who live in small apartments, which is a lot of Vancouver nowadays, don't necessarily have an opportunity to connect while physically distancing in, in their home or their backyard. Uh, recognizing that there's lots of small businesses out there that can't physically support patio, um, and recognizing that there's folks who may feel over-policed and, and need that kind of certainty about, yes, this is legally sanctioned area to do this rather than a sort of ambiguously gray area. So the idea was to take this as a pilot and look how we expand it. Uh, obviously, it's a little bit late in the season now for us to consider how we might expand it before the rains start up again, but hopefully this will inform uh, a future direction for the city of Vancouver that might be more embracing of the idea of sort of public plazas and piazzas, uh, which many people think that Vancouver is not quite ready for. I think that um, uh, by and large, most Vancouverites have dis- you know displayed a, a lot of uh, responsibility and, and conscientiousness in mm-hmm. how they've approached uh, responding to this pandemic. And I think uh, also that Vancouver has grown up a lot since, um, you know, the, the days of, of seafarer uh, and, and, and rowdiness and, and Canucks riots and stuff. I think we have a more cosmopolitan population, and I think a lot more people who understand and appreciate how we can responsibly use public spaces without being a bunch of Lugans. I hope so. I really hope so. Fingers crossed Me on too. that one. Me too. Uh, let's talk. You mentioned you live in Strathcona, and of course, that's been in the news. Uh, you've got the encampment there at the park. Is there any update on that? I know their residents have gotten frustrated. They want the campers to be helped out. What is going on? Yeah, it's a real struggle over here. I, I, I won't lie. It's been super stressful um, because it's not just the encampment, but it's the peripheral activity. I mean, it's become quite a magnet for. Uh, folks coming even from Surrey, but 
certainly from the downtown east side, and we're seeing just a, a real shift in, in how the local um, community is is able to sort of withstand a lot of these impacts. And we're talking folks who are, are, are you know, uh, in the throes of some, um, you know, psychotic episodes, mm-hmm. had a couple of incidents involving children, um, weapons, uh, it's, you know, and, and just general disorder, and of course, a lot of theft. So it's, it's really reaching a point that uh, is is calling for some urgent intervention, and um, you know, hoping to work with. Uh, you know, I certainly have a number of my colleagues on council and park board are recognizing that this needs to be addressed in an urgent manner. And of course, as we go into the, the August month and there's a lot less things going on, I think I worry that this will go from bad to worse. So really, there's a call to action for the for the province to step up. There was a commitment back in the budget to uh, deploy navigation centers, and these navigation centers, which have really been piloted in San Francisco, and are kind of a, a low barrier approach to to getting folks who need the supports into a managed kind of facility. Uh, in the case of San Francisco, there are these giant football field sized tents. Getting folks in there and then finding out what it is that they need. Do they need housing? Do they need you know addiction support? Do they need a bus ticket back right. to their home community? Um, the province has made a commitment to that in in the in the budget. Obviously, COVID hit and everything changed, but we want to kind of pull back to that commitment because I think that will be the solution that will enable us to 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 cream out the folks who are in that encampment who need the support. Mm-hmm. And then we can deal with the folks who are in there that are running chop shops. And there's a lot of chop shops and theft happening in that camp. I yeah. don't, there's no way to sugarcoat that. So, you know, if we can deal with the folks who legitimately need the support, then we can get rid of the, the partiers and the criminals and, and really return the, the park and the, the, the larger neighborhood back to a sort of, um, well, back to the community that it, that it was. So it's always right. managed and dealt with a lot of the, the challenges of being in the downtown east side. Uh, so it's not like we're asking for for something that we're not used to as right. far as having a completely manicured experience. But I think getting things from the crisis point that it's at is going to be a, an urgent call. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, so we've been telling you this morning about some new rules that are being put into place as of today for Americans crossing the border and want to go to Alaska, right? We've had all these anecdotal stories about people say they're crossing the border to Alaska, and then we see them in Banff, or they're in places where they shouldn't be if they're on their way to Alaska. As of this morning, though, uh, the Canada Border Services Agency uh, is being allowed to kind of crack down on that, which means that Americans can only cross and go to Alaska at like four or five border crossings. That's it. There's three of them, I believe, in BC, one in Alberta, one in Saskatchewan. And if they want to cross, they have to go through one of those border crossings and new rules about they, they get a, a sticker that they have to, or something that they have to hang from their rearview mirror that says they're transiting through to Alaska. And on that, there's actually a date with which they have to be gone from Canada by that date. To talk more about that, about this new system, we're joined now by Len Saunders, who is based in Blaine, Washington. He's an immigration lawyer. Len, thanks for being here. No problem. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Well, what do you think about this? Well, I think there's good intentions in this new rule, but I don't think the government has properly thought out what the consequences are for some people, and especially with regards to enforcement of this rule. Who's going to enforce it? And when I first heard of this provision, I thought, well, 
I think it's good to keep track of people entering and leaving the country because if you're an American citizen and you say you need to go to Alaska and let's say it's a two or three day drive and you end up taking three weeks to go through British Columbia, obviously you're not taking a direct route. So, you know, having the person check in when you enter the country and then check out when you leave, I think that's a good idea. What I'm concerned about is putting these tags in someone's window and let's say they're five miles off their destin, you know, their, their route going north off the freeway at a hotel or at a restaurant. Who's going to enforce whether that person's abiding by the rules or not? The general public? Are they supposed to enforce this? Well, they're the ones who and, have been enforcing this right now. They're, the general public, I think, is the reason why these tags have even been made, you know, mandatory. So let's say, here's a good example. I got a call yesterday after the rule came out from a dual citizen client who's an Air Canada pilot who lives in Blaine, and he flies out of Vancouver Airport. He's now concerned if he's driving through Vancouver with his U.S.-plated car, he's doing essential services because he's taken seven, you know, triple sevens over to Shanghai and bringing back medical supplies. Is he going to be targeted as someone who doesn't have a placard in his window? And these are the issues I don't think the Canadian government has fully thought out. Right. I think, though, overall, that it was the anecdotal stories, right, Len, that got to people. And that is, do you, you don't need to go to Banff if you are on your way to Alaska, or at least if that's what you told the border. And there were just too many stories of people off the course. Well, I understand that. I understand some people probably have taken advantage of the privilege of being able to drive through Canada on the way up to Alaska. But my concern is all of the other people, Canadians like me, who may be driving around the lower mainland in a U.S. plate of car without a tag on the window, are they going to be targeted as someone who's possibly not you know, abiding by this new provision? Because not everybody's driving to Alaska. There's hundreds of people in my area in northern Washington state who commute over as essential workers right. every day. See, I don't think it's meant for for people like you or for any of those workers, I think it is for people in other parts of BC, perhaps, because we were getting complaints from like Vancouver Island and things like that, where those plates would definitely seem out of place. Oh, I totally understand that. I totally understand that some people have taken advantage and abused it. But the problem is, I think by targeting people by putting these tags in their windows, it's, it's you know, making them, you know, a target for people to report them if they think that they've violated any of these laws. I've only received in the last four months one call from an American citizen who is interested in going to Alaska. So I don't think there's as many people as has been reported. But I think the people who are traveling back and forth, I think it's a good idea to say, look, we'll give you three days, you go straight, or two days, you go straight up to Alaska, and when you're leaving the Yukon, entering Alaska, we want you to check in with a Canadian border officer. I think that's a great idea. It's just the in-between right. section. It's going to be difficult to monitor. Yeah, I, I get that too, because I think, well, there is a lot of concern. There are people already, unfortunately, if you've got a license plate from outside of BC, we know anecdotally that people are already concerned about that, right? The tag, I don't think, is going to make that much more of a difference. Um, well, I think the tag... You know, people are going to be concerned if you have a tag, are you abiding by this new provision? If you don't have a tag, have you taken it off your car? Because, you know, it's not like it's going to be glued on the back of your car and you can't take it off. 
you can quite easily take it off and do whatever you want. So there just seems to be a lack of um, you know, details on how they're going to be enforcing this and how other people driving U.S.-plated cars who are allowed to be in B.C., who aren't traveling north, are they going to be affected by this new provision? I guess the problem is, Len, how do you make people, you know, follow the rules? Well, and that's the problem. And that's yeah. why I think the Canadian government has been smart by getting a little bit more tight on these travelers going north. And it's interesting because for years, Americans have traveled back and forth. I see them when they're going north at the Peace Arch Port of Entry because you'll see the license plates with the U-Hauls going up to Alaska. So, you know, I know a lot of Americans go back and forth. I'm assuming the traffic has slowed down a lot because of coronavirus and less people traveling back and forth. So I think it's smart to monitor the people who are actually needing to travel up to Alaska. But, you know, I just, I, I disagree with putting something in your window and having the general public as the enforcement rather than CBSA, the actual officers. Right. But again, like I say, I think we've heard with the license plates, and it's not just Washington plates or Oregon plates, it's Alberta plates. It's, I feel like people have just become very sensitive to this issue. Well, exactly. And like, even for myself and Blaine here, I'm surprised when I see a Canadian plated car. There's so few Canadian cars down here these days in northern Whatcom County. I understand when you see U.S. plates driving around Vancouver. Are these people allowed to be up here? Yeah. Are they, you know, complying with the quarantine and all that? So I, I definitely understand the concern of Canadians and the Canadian government. Now, I know, Len, last time we talked to you, I was asking you about how people down in Blaine felt about opening the border. How is it right now? How are people feeling about that? Well, I think most people in northern Washington state understand why the border is closed. They would love to have it reopen. A lot of my neighbors who operate businesses in Blaine, they've been hammered financially. You know, businesses down at most of the gas stations by more than 95%. So they do want the influx of Canadian customers coming south. Everyone's being patient. We're hoping it's going to end soon, the border closure. But, you know, nobody knows. I think most people are now resigned to the border being closed until the end of the year. And so they're making adjustments for that. All right, Len, thanks so much for your time on this. Thanks, Jimmy. Have a good day. You too. That's Len Saunders, immigration lawyer who's based down in, based down in Blaine, Washington, talking about these new rules that Canada is putting into place as of today if there are cars who come to the border and say they're going to Alaska. Well, they have to put this tag and they have to hang it from the rearview mirror and it has a date on it by which they have to be gone from the country. Uh, but will people follow the rules? You heard what Len had to say. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW. What's happening down in the United States today the last 24 hours, well, they've taken some twists and turns. When we saw the tweet yesterday that U.S. President Donald Trump was floating the idea of potentially delaying Election Day in November, well, that set off everybody, including some Republican lawmakers speaking out against something the president was saying for the first time. To talk more about this, we're joined now by Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So I find this story so interesting because he said that almost like to bait people because really he can't change the election. 
No, he can't change the election. The Constitution vests that power solely with the Congress to be able to set and uh, ensure that an election happens on a certain day. Uh, but at the end of the day here, this is a president who has uh, proven time and time again that he knows how to manipulate the media. He knows how to throw something shiny in the sky and have everybody focus on that to distract the focus from something else. This was just one of those comments for the president to try and get us to talk about something else, not talk about the pandemic, but also to have the president push some misinformation. Right about mail and ballots and it worked it did work look we're talking about it right now 24 yeah. hours later uh it's still a topic of conversation uh you know in the white house press briefing right now but they're still pushing the same bits of misinformation at the end of the day the president cannot change the election day okay but he seemed to quite knit, you know be convinced that this he wanted to raise this ruckus right he even pinned the tweet to the top so pe- even though other republican lawmakers were saying this isn't going to happen yeah, I mean, look, Republicans are, uh, it's a rare moment to see rank and file Republicans, especially like Kevin McCarthy or Mitch McConnell stand up to the president. But oftentimes you see the president try to kind of take the Constitution and, and, and turn it into something that may better suit his own narrative or his own goals, uh, where there are career politicians in Washington who kind of live by the lay of the land that the Constitution lays out. Uh, and they're there to defend that, not often defending the president. Right. And I also don't understand, would he not be concerned that he would be then depressing his own vote if people didn't have faith in the system. Well, I mean, look, the president simply just wants to make it more confusing for people. He's not trying to destroy the system. He just wants people to have less faith in it. But at the end of the day, mail-in ballots could eventually help the president as well because there are, uh, you know, there's a number of of people in the population who may not be able to go out and cast a ballot uh, because of the virus. So there is a chance that mail-in balloting could help the president, even though Technically and typically, it does help Democrats. So does this, do you think, indicate that the as much as he rails against them, he has been kind of maybe looking at the polls lately? Well, I mean, that's one of the main reasons that most people are saying the president decided to distract people outside of coronavirus is because national polls show him double digits behind Joe Biden. Uh, and he's sinking behind Joe Biden as well in some of the key states like uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Minnesota uh, and Florida, where the, the, the trail behind Joe Biden is outside of the margin of error. And at a time where you're less than 100 days from an election, when the president's campaign is hemorrhaging cash right now, he needs to do something to try and drum up support from a fleeting base. Yeah, I saw that they had actually suspended some of their advertising while they retooled it to hit the right message. Does that indicate that maybe the campaign's in a bit of trouble? Well, they understand what the reality is right now. When, when, you know, when you say that they're retooling it, essentially it means that they're just clearing the way for Joe Biden to take control of the airwaves, understanding that the comeback may simply be impossible. This is not the 2016 race where you have, you know, two candidates that are generally unlike. You have a candidate for the Democrats right now who does have broad support on a wide range of the population within Democrat and Republican ranks. Uh, and, and the Trump campaign understands this. The problem here is that the president president may not understand it so he's simply trying to do what he can to take control of the situation right and the backdrop also being of course the funeral of john lewis yesterday yeah, I mean, look, it was also, you know, important to remember that there are, uh, that at that funeral, there were three former presidents. The current president did not show up, uh, but former 
President Barack Obama did make some kind of uh, slams towards Donald Trump without naming him, talking about his uh, ability to try and break down democracy in the country, talking about the ability for the president to try and interfere now with the U.S. Postal Service uh, by having new rules created that will make it more difficult to have mail-in ballots take place uh, during the the uh, the upcoming election. Uh, you know, this was a moment of remembrance for John Lewis, but also a moment uh, to remember the, the 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 steps and strides that he took to help right. get America where it is right now. And do you think, so yesterday's tweets then, do you think there was also an effort at distraction? Because there were three former presidents there yesterday. Uh, you had George W. Bush, you had Bill Clinton, you had Barack Obama, but no current president. You had no current president, and you'll also notice the president held a last-minute news conference last night, right around times where, where you know, most news outlets were going to be playing some of the uh, the, the highlights uh, of of speeches during that uh, during that funeral. So, you know, the president oftentimes knows how to work the media in order to ensure that he is going to be front and center. Right. The problem is his attempts right now are completely out of touch with what everybody else is talking about. All right. So, and, and again, still not a whole lot of updates on the COVID nineteen situation and how the White House is approaching that. Well, so look, they're holding a press briefing right now, and the chief of staff just came out to try and blame a lot of the issues currently right now on Democrats, that being the fact that Americans, millions of them, are about to lose their unemployment benefits today because there is no further stimulus uh, uh, package that's going to go forward. Democrats passed a bill in the House two months ago. Republicans just came up with a bill on Monday. There's obviously no consensus on this right now. Uh, so there are millions of Americans that are about to fall even further short when it comes to cash and potential evictions uh, because lawmakers are simply having a hard time getting together with this. But the president simply says that the way that he's dealing with it right now is appropriate, despite the fact that 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 counter right now shows four and a half million cases and a death toll that's now approaching 153,000. Oh, boy. All right. Thanks very much, Reggie. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Another interesting week down in the United States. Does feel a bit like paradise out there the last couple of days, doesn't it? And here we are heading into a long weekend. And yet we know health officials have reported that but 1,000 people were exposed to COVID-19 in Kelowna back on the Canada Day long weekend, because that's how many people have ended up in isolation since then. So what's being done to prepare for this long weekend? To talk more about that now, we're joined by Loyal Woolridge, a city councillor in Kelowna and a small business owner. Uh, Loyal, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. What has the discussion been like in the community of Kelowna in light of this outbreak? Well, quite clearly, it's very alarming. You know, BC in general was doing quite well in terms of transmission. And then with the long weekend and and reopening of businesses, obviously, we saw that uptick um, in transmission here in Kelowna. We're a tourist town, so people come here, they intermingle. um, And so spreading COVID-19 is quite the risk, as we've seen. So we are taking an education approach and working with public health officials to continue to educate the public and to share positive messaging um, about successes as well as advising people of how they can be responsible while visiting Kelowna. Do you think behaviour has changed in the last couple of weeks since the messaging has kind of started? I believe so. You know, I think leading up to Canada Day, people were really pent up. And with the reopening of businesses, some people felt like it was a return to normal. And obviously, with the results, it's especially made locals realize that we're not out of the woods yet. We're still in the first inning of a nine inning game. And uh, we have to be responsible and, um, you know. Yeah. Take measures. So, you know, last long weekend, we heard that, you know, a lot of parties, parties that got out of hand, too many people, no people keeping track of who was who. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what is being done heading into this long weekend, Loyal? 
Well, first and foremost, from a city perspective, um, we've got education teams that are going out with police and bylaw, and we're not taking a punitive approach, but they will be approaching groups of people that are congregating or in large numbers to educate them about the risks. Um, I think BC has done quite well in not taking a penalty approach, um, and Dr. Henry's made that quite clear that we'll continue with education. So from an enforcement perspective, we'll be um, you know, educating people on the PHO orders. Um, and then aside from that, it's just getting a lot of messaging out through the Interior Health Authority, um, asking people to be responsible and to, you know, embrace that businesses have protocols that they've been asked to do and to not find loopholes in public health orders, Um, you know, respecting that restaurants can only have six people at a table, not pushing your tables together, not tying your boats together in the lake, Um, obviously not on land. I saw that picture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, that has been going on. Like We've heard from some business owners in Kamloops as well saying that people just have not been, some people have not been very nice about this. Are yeah. businesses in Kelowna finding that as well? You're a business owner. Yeah, so I'll speak to my own experience in that regard. Um, I actually own a hair salon, so personal care. And um, we, we require that um, both guests and stylists wear masks. And there is daily pushback around, well, I don't really want to wear a mask. Um, but this is for the protection of our guests as well as our workers. And as businesses, we have that obligation to keep our workers safe. So aside from the guests that are entering businesses, we also have to ensure our works, our workforce is safe. Yeah. Because even if one person's exposed, that shuts down businesses for at least two weeks. I know. And we know now because, I mean, hair salons have been open for a while and yeah. there have not been any cases, Knockwood, of COVID-19 because people are following the rules. Exactly. And, you know, most of our transmission points that we've seen actually didn't even happen in businesses. As you know, they they happened in uh, private parties at vacation rentals and and those types of venues. So, um, you know, unfortunately, businesses get painted with the brush when people are going out and and frequenting those establishments. Um, But it's important to note that we actually haven't had transmission from businesses. So as long as people are following those protocols, everyone is safe to be frequenting um, the city. Right. I would imagine, though, that with this long weekend, restaurants, you know, bars, that kind of thing, they there must be a little bit of tension on that front because they are going to have to probably enforce harder than they did last time. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard because your restaurants and and personal care, they're there to to offer that service, not necessarily to enforce public health orders. So we really want people to be sensitive to the fact that we've got people working in the service industry that are doing their best to service you. And it's a lot easier on them if people can respect the travel manner rules that Dr. Henry has given us, you know, staying staying home if you're sick, keeping small groups um, and having a contact keeper is one of the new pieces of information that's come out so that if you are in your group, that you have everyone's name and contact information. So in the event there is an exposure, public health is able to reach out and contact Trace in, a, in short order. Okay, so then Lou, what is your advice to people if they are perhaps headed to Kelowna or the interior to enjoy the long weekend? First and foremost, if you're sick, stay home. If you come down with symptoms while you're here in Kelowna, stay in your rental unit or hotel and get tested by calling 811 right away. And keeping to your small bubble, so not intermixing with different people that you don't know, um, even if they're locals, even if they're people that you know from Kelowna, keeping your distance because, honestly, physical distancing is the number one um, contributor to reducing transmission. And then even before you come here, have all of your contacts ready. So again, in the event that there is a transmission, you're able to provide that to public health in short order. All right. Thanks so much for your time on this and good luck. 
My pleasure. Thank you so much. That is Loyal Woolridge, who's a Kelowna City Councillor, also a small business owner, owns a salon in Kelowna, about the challenging efforts they've been making the last couple of weeks to really get that message out to people. Partying on the Canada Day long weekend did cause a community outbreak there, right, that has affected all of BC. And now they're hoping really to not repeat that with this long weekend.